So we're jumping back into our series on fundamentals. It's only a two-week series, but it's a good way to start off the year where we're talking about who we are as a people and what we're all about. Last week we talked about loving God, and our basic premise was this. Let's put this up on the screen. Loving God is loving people. That's what we talked about last week, right? And so in a brilliant twist of words, we're going to talk about loving people again today by saying this. Loving people is loving God. You see what I did there? Okay. And I'm going to flesh this out for you a little bit more. But um, God expects us, if you are going to be a follower of Jesus, to not just give mental assent to lofty ideas that we find in Scripture, but to actually put into action the things that you say you believe and think that you believe, to take what's in your head and your heart and live it out. This is the reason why so many people could care less about Christians around the entire planet and what we say we believe because not enough of us are living it out. Hard truth. Very hard truth. Okay? Um, It's why churches are closing their doors left and right across America. More than 4,000 every week. Okay? Yeah. What you need to realize is that most churches are under 100 people strong. They're not big mega churches, and there's tons of them. You know, you roll into whatever town, USA, in the middle of nowhere, and there might be three or four churches there, right? But only one of them still open, correct? There's reasons for these things. It's not just that our culture has shifted. It's that we need to live out this thing called faith. We don't just need to give mental assent to it. Loving people is loving God. And if we actually were loving people, and I'm not saying that you don't, I'm just saying in general, if we were doing that, I think we would be not facing such attrition and a bunch of other things that are going on in the world. So we talked last week about this continuum, right? That we live where we kind of have this tendency to lean towards one side or the other. Well, I want to love God well, and the way I'm going to do that is this, all these spiritual formation practices, learning how to pray, going on retreat, having a quiet time, going to worship. And then there's loving people. And I want to do all this social justice stuff on this side. And I want to do that well, but I don't really have the character of Jesus, and I haven't really done any spiritual formation stuff over there. And Jesus is saying, like, I want you to do both. And what happens is if you do one and not the other, you get into strange places. And you don't have a lot of fortitude to live this Christian life with endurance. I want to give you an example of this. Um, this, is, this is not an, uh, an, a new problem that we don't know how to love God and love others. Like we, or we want to do that, but we just we feel like it's too hard. We let things get in the way. This is, I've been reading through a book I've wanted to read for a long time. I was talking to a few of you about this last week. It's called The Brothers Karmazov. Anybody else read this? Probably not. How many have heard of it? Okay. By Dostoevsky. Okay. Um, Russian philosopher, okay? And uh, it's one of the classics. You know, you went to English in high school and they gave you all the list of classics and you read the ones they forced you to and then you were like, that sounds like a nice idea if you want to read the rest, but then you didn't read any of them. So I'm like, okay, I want to read some of these. Um, And so in this story near the beginning, there is a elder in the community. He's kind of like a father. His name is um, Elder Zosima, uh, Zosima, and he's talking to a lady, and she just comes to confess to him and says, I stink at loving people well. I mean, I really want to, but I can't. I'm not good at it. I, I kind of love everybody generally, but when it comes to specific people, 
I'm not good at it. And in fact, I don't want to do it. Like the, the people that I know the best, I have the hardest time loving. To which everybody said, yep. Right? Yep. We have all these jokes about this, right? When your family comes to visit you, they're like fish because after three days, they... What was that? What was that? Yeah, a bunch of you said that. Yeah, they stink. Not Nate's family, though. Nate's family, like, they sing songs and stuff and make them up, I've been told. And, like, I'm like, what is that Mr. Rogers family there? I don't know that, but I want it. Um, here's, here's a direct quote, the conversation that goes on in that book, okay? Here is the father, Sosima, speaking to this lady. He says, I heard exactly the same thing a long time ago, to be sure, from a doctor, the elder remarked. He was an old man and unquestionably intelligent. He spoke just as frankly as you, humorously, with a sorrowful humor. I love mankind, he said, but I'm amazed at myself. The more I love mankind in general, the less I love people in particular. That is individually, as separate persons, in my dreams, he said. I often went so far as to think passionately of serving mankind, and it may be. Would really have gone to the cross for people if it were somehow suddenly necessary, and yet I am incapable of living in the same room with anyone, even for two days. This I know from experience. As soon as someone is there close to me, his personality oppresses my self-esteem and restricts my freedom. In 24 hours, I can begin to hate even the best of men. One because he takes too long eating his dinner, another because he has a cold and keeps blowing his nose. I become the enemy of the people the moment they touch me, he said. On the other hand, it has always happened that the more I hate people individually, the more ardent becomes my love for humanity as a whole. So we struggle with loving God, and it's an old problem, right? And loving people on this continuum a bit. And as Christians, we fall into this we fall into this studying and knowledge and spiritual formation piece and, and classes and information, and we want to learn and grow mentally. And that's good because if you're working on spiritual disciplines and putting in, them into practice, you will grow in Christ like maturity, unless you're just like there faking it, okay? However, we've talked about this a lot together. Just giving mental assent to facts does not a Christian make. Just knowing the facts about Jesus' life and the scriptures and the story of God, it doesn't make you a Christian if you just know them, if you just know them. It's making the connection between the facts and what you do with them, how you experiment and apply them in real tangible ways, not unlike going into a lab and chemistry class. It makes all the difference. So we do things. We are teaching this to our youth, right? We're like in our middle school group, in our elementary group, we're like, hey, how would you put your faith into action? And they're like, hey, we want to help the West Seattle Helpline last year. And so what they do? They lured all of you quite successfully with donuts every Sunday morning. And they raised like, how, I think it was over $700 in a matter of like six weeks just from you buying donuts, a little bit over cost. And then they went down there and they got to see what the helpline was all about or what the food bank, the White Center Food Bank was all about. They gave them the check and they got the tour and they're like, wow, look at all this amazing stuff. And they're like, we want to be involved more. So we're thinking about how we can do that even more. And they're putting their faith into action, right? It's not just, okay, go to Sunday school. In fact, they're leading the way, are they not? Yeah. Knowledge into action with persistence, that leads to real growth. I was, I'm reading another book right now called Feel Bad Education. 
Field-bad education. Other contrarian essays on children and schooling. You're like, that sounds boring. Kind of. I'm reading it because I like to, from an educational perspective, how in this moment are we going to be learning well, right? Here's a quote from that book in not a Russian, terrible Russian accent. Just knowing a lot of facts doesn't mean that one is smart. Even students who do manage to remember some of the factual material that they were taught are not necessarily able to make sense of those bits of knowledge, to understand connections among them, or to apply them in inventive and persuasive ways to real-life problems. To cite an old adage, which was also cited approvingly by Albert Einstein, Education is that which remains if one has forgotten everything he learned in school. Yes. Amen. Right? (laughs) Words like smart and intelligent are routinely used to describe people who merely know a lot of facts. You know people like this, right? We are people like this, right? Yeah. Yet I think most people will admit that there's a difference. In fact... The cognitive scientist Lauren Resnick goes even further. It's not just that knowing or having been taught facts doesn't in itself make you smart. A mostly fact-oriented education may actually interfere with you becoming smart. Thinking skills tend to be driven out of the curriculum by ever-growing demands for teaching larger and larger bodies of knowledge. She writes, to which every teacher in here said, yes. Right? Yeah, Katie's like, yes. Yeah. Yet schools continue to treat students as empty glasses into which information can be poured. Hang on to that word poured. We're going to touch on that later. And public officials continue to judge schools on the basis of how efficiently and determinedly they pour. Now, I'm not, that's not a diatribe on my part against our education system, although I have a lot to say about that. Raised by two teachers and a mother-in-law who's a teacher. Um, I have my opinions, okay? But that word poured out, continue to judge the schools on the basis of how efficiently and determinedly they pour facts, just facts, just facts, right? So I, asked, I asked my son the other day, instead of asking him, uh, what did you learn today? Or what did you learn new today? I'm like, hey, I was walking him to school last Friday, and I said, hey, you ever had a thought when your teacher's teaching you something that you, you just don't agree with her? Like, you're like, that's wrong. And do you say anything about it? And he was like, he just looked at me like, that's allowed? He's like, no way. He's like, no, I never really thought about that, you know? The point of that, you could, you could substitute a bunch of words into that quote from that book about feel bad education. In other words, if you, if you want to apply it to the Christian life, you can be filled to the brim with all the smartness and facts of the Bible about Christ, but you cannot act like him at all. You totally can't. So if you go back to the balance metaphor, if you swing to the other side of the pendulum where it's just loving people and I'm just going to do every social justice thing there is, but I'm not going to do anything to form myself to be like Christ. I'm just going to do that part of it. When there's a whole other well of stuff over here, I'm just going to love people. We jump heavily into that. Both are important, but without the substance and fortitude of spiritual formation on this side that it brings, you're not going to have the character to keep doing this. You're going to be a flash in the pan for a social justice issue, okay? And we want to be sustained, long-term, loving people who never stop doing that, okay? Uh, I've shown you this Venn diagram before. Let's put this up on the screen. This is Jesus. He does this continually to his disciples throughout his ministry. 
he invites them on, one, on, the, on the y-axis, and, then he, and he challenges them on the, on the x-axis. And this is what happens in your spiritual life. If, you, if, you, uh, if it's all just happy, happy, come to church and do the fun things, but don't go to anything spiritual formation, or just stay in here where I feel a little bit uncomfortable when the preacher gets in my face, but I don't really go to do anything service, and I haven't gone to a prayer meeting in ever, then you're just like, if you're not accepting the challenge, you're not accepting the invitation, you're in the bored quadrant, and you're wondering why, like, I'm here, I got dragged here today. Yeah, part of that's probably your fault. But where we mostly end up being is in the comfortable position, where we're like, oh, I want your love, Jesus. I want your love and your grace and your mercy. But I don't want to do the things you tell me to do. Like, when you say follow, you mean me to actually, you want me to do the things that you did for the reason that you did them? Wait, I thought I was just supposed to come to church on Sunday. And it takes a little bit of discouragement when you actually, you dip into that discouragement quadrant when you actually start doing the things Jesus did, and you're like, I'm not good at this. I need to get better. I get this, I'm like, that didn't work right away. And then all of a sudden you, you push through it and you come back up into that empowered spot. That's where we want to be, amen? That's where we want to be. That's where we want to get to. And it takes, it takes a lot more than Sunday morning. It takes a lot more than serving. It takes a lot more than just coming to Kinfolk Group. It takes, like, it takes like the whole enchilada, okay? It takes everything put together. So what I want to get into today, for me personally, um, I was raised in the church, and the way I was raised in the church was this. We are people of the Word. We are people of the Bible, all right? We study the Word of God because knowledge is paramount. Knowledge is at the top. Now, luckily for me, in where I was raised in the church, I was surrounded by good, honest, loving people. Where I, and I, I want to believe that most people were, but I know that many people weren't. But lucky for me, I was. But as I grew older and started evaluating the integrity of people, mainly adults that were older than me, I was evaluating their integrity and the life they live, calling themselves a Christian. Some of you are smiling, going, oh man, I know where this is going. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Well, I'm just going to tell you. What I found was this. <laughs> I was around a lot of people who called themselves Christians, but really they were just a bunch of jerks. I see some of you going, yeah, that's my experience. Yeah, I know all this crap about Jesus, but I'm a jerk when I step outside these walls. That is not acceptable anymore. <laughs> and that is why, again, going back to what I said at the beginning, people are just jumping ship from the church. I think that you think, maybe some of you don't think about this at all, but I think that you think, like me, when you look at the people that are outside the walls of this church, oh, they must all be like secular people who think they're so smart and that there is no God. In my experience, as I have my boots on the ground day in, day out with people in this community, I find that tons of people have a church background. They've just jumped ship because they've lost faith in the mission of the church and the, 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 the people following through with it, right? We can't afford to do that anymore. And by we, I mean us in this room. We can't do that. We have to love people well. We don't want to be really smart Christians who are jerks. Okay? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not like here to accuse all of you this morning. I, like, 
I haven't sat down to coffee with each and every one of you and talked about your whole life, okay? Some of you have told me lots of stories about your life. Others of you have given me, like, your own autobiography. Awesome. Gives me insight into your life, and I, and I know what's going on. But that was a dis- big disconnect for me to grow up in the church and then go, oh, I'm watching people who say they're Christian, and I've actually been baptized here, and I've given my life to Jesus, but I see you doing this, and I see you saying that. So in my own ministry, there's been this tension between studying the Word and then practicing love, like practicing it. And I want to be clear about this. I value knowledge. I believe that all of us in this room should put a lot of effort into uh, concentration and into studying God's Word. But what I want to say is this. You have not learned to be like Jesus unless you act like Him. And we know why that is the case. How many of you have grown up in the church, by the way? Raise your hand, okay? Well, then let me show you this chart. Let's do the next one up here. I've shown this to you before. This is the average retention rate after 24 hours. This has nothing to do with Bible teaching. This has to do everything with any kind of teaching. The average retention rate, meaning like you remember it, okay? Number one, lecture. And it's the biggest slice on the pyramid. Like it's a big fat one, right, at the top. Lecture, like what I'm doing to you right now, a Christian TED Talk, otherwise known as a sermon. Uh, 5% of what I'm saying, you're going to remember it. Nuh-uh. You're like, no, I am not. I'm going to remember all of it. No, really? Okay. If you read something in addition, and it's not like you do one without the other, you build from the top down, right? If it's a lecture with reading, you're going to retain 10%. If there's, if there's audiovisual, Audiovisual. Yes. Okay. We're at 20%. Demonstration. I don't know. I talked in a crappy Russian accent. Does that count? Maybe you're going to remember that part. All you're going to remember is Brothers Karamazov. Demonstration. Discussion group. What if I circled you all up at tables right now and said, discuss this? (gasps) My bubble. Practice by doing and then teach others immediate use of learning. Okay. This has been your life in church, and primarily it's just been the top three, mainly just the the top one, right? And you wonder why Christians, you need some handholds to learn how to do this thing called love, not just, you should go do love, point three, love your neighbor, you know? I think everyone should carve out significant chunks of time in your week for studying God's Word. In order to do that, all you have to do, really, you're like, well, how am I going to do that? I'm so busy. I'm going to really turn off your TV. I always got mad at the preachers that I grew up with who were always like talking about turning off your TV. It got really annoying because I'm like, you don't know my week, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you know what? No, really, turn off your TV. You know, I was telling somebody this week that when they were asking Netflix last year who's your biggest competitor with disney plus and amazon and apple tv all coming online and they're all going to be challenging you and you know what they said their biggest competitor was sleep they're like none of those other things matter sleep is our biggest competitor meaning we just can't stop looking at a freaking screen You know, we want to get outside of our life for a minute to not deal with our life. And we're going to we're going to touch on that in a minute. But don't let the idols of our culture give you excuses that are just lame. 
Like, if you don't have time to read God's Word, make some time. Make an appointment with God. Like, if you had an appointment at the dentist and you put it on your calendar, are you going to keep the appointment? I am at mine because they're going to charge me if I don't tell them. <laughs> and, and I don't cancel within 24 hours beforehand or whatever, right? Make an appointment with God and keep it. Put it on your calendar. So set a goal for yourself for studying at least some time during the week. And don't worry, this is all going to come together among the loving people and loving God bit, but set, a, set some time for that during the week. Read the Bible. Write it down. Write it down. Like, write the Psalms down. I find that when you write it, it hits you in a different way, okay? Get the text into your heart. Do some kind of study. Pray. There's one. Pray. Do you know this is just... Because there are days, shockingly enough, where I don't pray. And I guilt myself over that. And then there are other days where I'm like, it seems like I'm sitting at my computer doing stuff and like every 10 minutes I have to stop and pray. Okay? But did you know that this is not a laughing matter, but it just makes me laugh, and it's sad, too. If you read the Bible for five minutes a day and you prayed for five minutes a day, you'd be in the top 1% of all Christians. Ten minutes. Ten minutes. That's really convicting to me. Pursuing knowledge is good, though. The problem comes when you pursue knowledge as an end. That's this side of the pendulum. I'm just going to come to church and do the, do the lecture, download the material, know the facts, and I just know everything. And then when I go to Bible study, I can tell everybody how much I know. Whoop-de-doo. Uh, that's making knowledge just the end of everything rather than knowledge as the means to something greater. Therefore, I'm mature. I want to come at it this way. English is a philosophical, idea-laden language. Like, we are all about the facts. We want the logic and all that. We communicate about things. We don't communicate about actions. Okay? Here's an example. I don't put your hand up. But how many of us in this room think it would be a good idea to get healthy, eat right, and exercise and lose some weight? You can raise your hand for that. Uh, but don't answer this. How many of you do that? <laughs> I mean, I try, but it's not consistent. And, and the answer is that for most of us, no, we don't. And from a Jewish perspective, we definitely don't. The Hebrew language, unlike the English, so the English language is built on nouns. Let's put that up there. It's built on ideas and concepts. That's the English language. But the Hebrew language, let's put the next one up there. <coughs> Excuse me, is built on verbs, i.e., doing and action. Okay, it's about the action. For the Hebrew, uh, go to the next slide. The life that I live will tell you exactly what I value. How I live will tell you what I know to be true. Okay? So if I talk all day long and have vast knowledge about eating right, and I've read all the, the latest books on that, and I'm losing losing weight, but I'm not actually walking it out, then I don't, I, from a Hebrew perspective, if I just can talk about all that and I'm not actually doing it, then I'm not actually, like, I'm not actually an expert on losing weight, am I? The problem with knowledge is that it gives us all this false sense of security, and that's what we want. In terms of our faith with Jesus, 
where like, if I know all the facts, I could supplant my faith in an invisible God by knowing all this stuff. Right? But I'm not actually being like Jesus. What the Bible teaches us is that knowing has to lead us to doing. That's what Jesus is always pointing at. So some of the things that keep us from loving people well is that we believe that the point of all of it is the pursuit of knowledge. Remember, I'm all for knowledge, but it needs to be balanced on the other end of the continuum with living it out. And here's why. One of the reasons that we do this is we are insecure. We have this fear of inadequacy when it comes to loving other people. Like, you think that if you're going to love your neighbor well who's not a Christian, that you have to have all of these facts and all of this knowledge in order to love them well. And Jesus is like, no, you, you just need the basics. It's good to have all the facts, but all you need is the basics. And you need to go love them well, right? What we talked about last week. Peter, you, you are failing miserably, but that does not change your call. And you need to go pursue my people, feed my sheep, love them well. But we're like, I'm not smart enough, I don't know enough, I'm not together enough, my life is in shambles, really? I've, some of the people who I, that I've known who've like been the most on fire for Jesus and love people well were the people who like right then gave their life to Jesus and the next week they're bringing friends to church. Okay? And they don't know everything. They, don't, they couldn't know, possibly know everything, all right? Well, you're like, when's the Scripture going to happen? Let's go to John chapter 4, and we'll dive into that for a minute. This is the story of Jesus and the woman at the well. And I want to tie this together for you in a different way, this loving idea in a different way than you've probably heard of before. But the story starts off by saying that Jesus had to go through Samaria. If you go to Go to John chapter 4, it starts with a little preamble, and then you get into verse 7 through 26, and that's the meat of it. I'm not going to put it all up on the screen. See if you remember that later. Not on the screen, okay? But it's a story, right? And Jesus is taking his disciples, and he says, I had to go through some... John says he had to go through Samaria, which is not true. Every other good Jew and every other good Jewish rabbi took everybody around Samaria. They're like... You're half-breeds, you're so bad, you're worse than the pagans, we're going to go all the way around your land in order, so we don't want to deal with you. Okay? And, and it, John says we had to go. <laughs> so immediately you should know something's up here. If you were a Jew reading this, you'd be like, what, he had to go? Why do you have to go? You know? So he's there for a reason. And then it says, his, he sends his disciples in to get, to get into town to get food, Right? So the next time, like, how many people does it take to go to the grocery store to feed your family? Ladies? I'm not saying that in, in a male chauvinistic type of way, but mostly I've grown up with the ladies doing the shopping. Anybody? How many people does it take to do the shopping for your family? Let's see, so Jesus is like, all you all go into store and get food. There's 13 of us here, including me, and I need 12 of you to go get lunch for us. Jesus is up to something here, <laughs> okay? So Jesus and this woman have this conversation. <clears throat> and after a bit, he says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. 
And a little while later, he says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. We just sing that song, all, you know, all who are thirsty. He's like, are you, I'm thirsty, give me a drink. And she says some stuff back to him, and he says, if you knew who you were talking to, you'd be asking me for water, living water that will well up in you to eternal life. And the woman says back to him, give me this water so I don't have to come here and draw any water from the well anymore. This is a really big uh, symbolic idea in the scriptures, the idea of living water. I want to show you guys a picture. Let's put this picture up here. This is uh, at a place in Israel called the Spring of Engedi. This is living water. It's a waterfall. It's moving. Okay? I hear somebody go, ah, I've been there. Been there? Did you swim in it? I've heard you could swim in it. I want to do that. It'd be really great. Uh, it doesn't look that clean, but I still want to swim in it, just to say I did. Um, living water moves under its own power. It's flowing. It's got an inlet and an outlet, right? It's not stagnant, right? As, but as soon as, you, as soon as you pick up that water in a bucket, it's not living water anymore, right? If you leave that bucket outside your house, it's going to stagnate. It's going to start growing some bacteria and some pond scum, maybe some mosquitoes, you know, that kind of thing, right? So for people in the de- who live in the desert, living water is uh, really essential. Really, really essential. And, and in fact, where I grew up in Arizona, you, would, you, know, you got all this system of rivers, the watershed, dams, that kind of thing. You store water in a dam, but you also need, when it's delivered to the people, you got to get it there, and it's got to be moving. You can't just store it. If you were trying to store the whole water for an entire city, where would you put it? Right? So you've got the dam for one place to hold it, and then it's got to flow one place to a water treatment plant. And on the way there, at least where I grew up, it's all on the system of where the Native Americans had their canals for their farming. And then we went in, right, we, all the white people later went in and, you know, took that and cemented it in. And the water flows, though. They took an ancient system that worked so that the water wouldn't stagnate, so that water, fresh water can get to people's houses in the desert. Okay? That's where I grew up. And you can, uh, you can see them everywhere in Arizona. You can just go, go to Google Maps and go to Mesa, Arizona, and you'll see all these canals cutting at 45-degree angles through neighborhoods in the desert. It's very important. Living water is critical. If you come up in the desert to a pool of water, that's probably not a good thing. It's probably not going to be as safe. You want to drink water from a river or a stream. Living water keeps itself pure. And it's a really big metaphor in the desert. So let me show you the desert that we're talking about here. This is uh, Wadi Zoar is what it's called. Picture of the desert in Samaria. In the place where Jesus was when he met this woman at the well. Just kind of bleak and barren. And in the scriptures also, you've got the, so you've got the living water metaphor and then you've got the desert metaphor. And the desert for the spiritual life of people back then and for us today becomes this, like if I say I'm in a desert spiritually, what does that mean? Kind of dried up, dead, waiting, troubled times, you know? What does it feel like to be in the desert of your life? And then we are supposed to, we are supposed to be, Jesus says to this woman, you're going to become 
living water welling up to eternal life in this desert. This is the invitation that Jesus gives this woman at the well. If you want the water I have to give, you're going to be, it's not that you just get to be happy with what I give you, but you're going to go give it to other people. If you want to, he says later in the same passage, if you want to worship God in spirit and truth, what it's going to look like is you choosing to be living water. Now, if you zoom forward a few chapters to John chapter 7, same author, just a few moments later, and what you need to pick up on here is that when John uses one phrase, he's very Jewish, when he uses one phrase and then he uses it again later, he's building on a theme. Okay? He's building on a theme of water. Choosing to be living water. This same phrase comes up and he's wants, he wants you to tie them together if you've been reading it all as one unit. He's like, hey, you would have been like, oh, he said that just a minute ago. So Jesus is up on the Temple Mount. And if you look in the ancient manuscripts that aren't in your Bible, like Josephus, Josephus says that at the he's there for the Feast of Sukkot. And what this feast is, is there, there, people just make this massive pilgrimage of Mecca. Josephus says that at one time when he was there for Sukkot, there was 300,000 people there on the Temple Mount. 300,000 people. Now, what happens in Sukkot is people, they live in tents, and they remember the Exodus, and then they pray that God would bring them rain. Sukkot happens in September. And remember, they live in a place like this. Sukkot happens in September, and that's the end of the dry season there. And they're praying for God to bring rain, because if it doesn't come now, then we're in trouble. And we're in trouble. We need God to show up. So what they would do is they would take a palm frond. Every person would get a palm frond, and they'd go up to the Temple Mount, and they would shake it. And they would shake it. How many of you have ever seen, you know, you've seen a palm frond, you've held one, maybe some of you have held one, maybe at an Easter service, Palm Sunday service, something like that. Now imagine 300,000 people shaking a palm frond. The, the visual I want to give you here, the sense I want to give you here is what, think about the sound. Think about the sound. How many of you have ever been in a downpour? Oh, wait, it's Seattle. So like last couple days ago, pouring rain. And we have a couple skylights in our house on the upper floor. And it'll be like trickle, 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 trickle. Palm fronds. What do they sound like? It's like 300,000 people with a rain stick. Imagine the sound. Imagine the sound. You know? They're praying that God would bring rain. They come together. And for the first seven days, it's kind of like, um, it's kind of like certain events at the Olympics where there's all this lead up events and we only see the televised part where there's all the elimination rounds before what we get to see on TV, right? And so for every event, a bunch of people and they might show you a clip. Well, back in whatever, whatever round, he did this and she did that or whatever. And in this heat, he ran this or whatever. And now they're at the, they're qualified. And now they're at this. And these are the last people, right? Well, it's kind of like that. Sukkot was seven days long, and people, 
more people are trickling in, trickling in and some of the, the palm frond thing is happening every day for the, for the whole seven days. And on the first six days, on the very first day, it's like a few people and then a little bit more and a little bit more and it starts building. And by the end, you got everybody doing this. And <clears throat> every day at the appointed time, the preacher or the priest, he takes, he takes a pitcher to the top of the Temple Mount and he climbs up the steps to the altar and he takes the pitcher and he does this. He dumps it over, and there's nothing in it. It's empty. He puts it back down, and everybody's like, okay, and that's the end of the day. And they do it again the next day, and the next day, and the next day. For seven days, they're doing this. And the last day, the last day is called Hoshana Rabbah. Now, you know this word, Hosanna, Hoshana, okay? Say Hoshana, Hoshana. This is the great Hoshana, the last day of the greatest day of the feast. Everybody's there. This is the championship moment. This is the gold medal round. Somebody's going home with gold, silver, or bronze. Everybody's there. They're shaking their palm fronds, and they're shouting, Hoshana, Hoshana. And it's not like a term of endearment, like when we put it in a song and we sing Hosanna. Hoshana means it's a desperate cry for save us. Bring us water now, or my kids are going to starve. Okay? because we live in the desert, and we're not going to eat. And they're shouting this. Imagine 300,000 people. How far away do you think you could have heard this from? Miles? Hoshana. And the priest climbs up the stairs to the altar, and the people are silent, and he takes the pitcher, and he turns it over, and it's empty. It's empty. But today, the people will have none of it. And so that... If he's a good Jew, this guy, he's going to go as far down the Temple Mount Hill, as far as he can go to get some water, okay? So he takes that pitcher and he starts walking. And it probably took him 40 minutes to an hour. He goes to the furthest possible pool of water, which was probably the pool of Bethesda, all the way down at the bottom of the Kidron Valley, and he scoops up water and he hikes it back up to the top. And the whole time, you, are, are, you have your palm frond and all of you are still going... Hoshana, 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 the whole time, waiting for him to get back up to the top. And he ascends the altar stairs, and the crowd falls silent. And he tips the pitcher over. Right before, it's like everybody's like, Hoshana, 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 Hoshana. They're shouting it, right? For an hour. And right when he gets to the top, everybody just pin drop. Dead silence. He's about to do it. He's about to tip it over. And then John chapter 7, verse 37 happens. And Jesus pops up in the middle of all of this. And he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And you wonder why they want to kill this guy. Are you kidding me? This is like chutzpah. This is, he stands up at the moment, this has been happening for centuries, and he stands up and does this. And by the way, Jesus' promise here, when he says this on the Temple Mount, is really critical to you and me, because he doesn't promise that if you're desperate, 
Hoshana, Hoshana. You need drink. You need water. You need living water. He doesn't promise that you will be filled. What does he promise? If you come to him, streams of living water will flow out of you. Jesus' invitation for you and I isn't that we go sit at the feet of Jesus and be filled and be happy and content all the time and just know everything. That was never our call. But what I know is that for many of us, is that we're so wrapped up in our own problems, our own deserts, that we lose sight. We lose sight of the fact that there are deserts all around us. There are people that are just desperate, dying in their deserts all around us. And you have the source of living water. You have the source of living water. Go give them a drink. Go give them a drink. Our call as followers of Jesus is to go to the source, Jesus himself, He's our source for the purpose of being living water in the deserts of people around us so that we can be poured out in love for those around us. And that makes all the difference because the, the expectation isn't that you need to know everything and you don't have to have your life all together. You don't have to have a biblical degree or airtight biblical knowledge Although you should pursue those things. I think if you know those things, that your water will taste better. And you can go down some really messed up places, though, and your water can taste pretty nasty. We've talked about that in here, too, haven't we? Like, don't go up to anybody. Like, seriously, don't go up to anybody. Hear me now. Don't go up to anybody and say, like, you know where you're going to go tonight if you die? You need Jesus. That's the crappiest news ever. And it's a, it's a pretty cruddy manipulation. Give them Jesus. Love on them. Let them know what you believe by how you live. Okay? And then tell them about Jesus. But not like that. Somehow, in the midst of this, like, don't ever neglect that truth that your call is to be living water in other people's deserts, to be poured out in love. Because when you do that, when you do both and they're going to get transformed, and so are you. You will be transformed. The best times in my life as a Christian were when I was doing both, and I felt the closest to God, and I felt like I was growing. Because when you love people well, you're loving God. Amen? That's the truth.